great. Um, our second reading this morning is from John chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Uh, Hold on one second. I actually need to do something here. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to open your Bibles. That's not the reading I need. Okay, open your Bibles to John chapter 15. Sorry about that. We're going to wind it a little bit earlier because I want to uh, pick up an earlier part of that same passage. I'm going to start uh, in verse 9. John chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. If you are my friends, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day and we thank you for gathering us here in this space. Uh, We pray for those of our number who are not able to be here. We pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would be present with them each in their their own spaces. Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, I pray that you would would speak to us and that you would make your will uh, and your heart known to us. And I do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our second reading this morning comes from the night of the Last Supper. Jesus knows what is coming. He knows that his death is going to be less than 24 hours away. And he has a lot of things to say to his disciples. He's not concerned about himself. He's concerned 
for his followers. He's been teaching them uh, little by little for three years. But the moment has come for their parting. And even after three years, he must have had so much more that he wanted to say to them. Some final instructions, some final words of encouragement, some final words of affection. In John's Gospel, all of chapter 13, all of chapter 14, all of chapter 15, all of chapter 16, all of chapter 17, five out of the 21 chapters uh, in that Gospel are dedicated to the scene at the Last Supper. Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Jesus praying uh, to his Father on behalf of the disciples and the church that would grow out of the disciples. Jesus giving a final sermon to them. All of them are recorded in those five chapters. It's as though saying goodbye is a hard thing and it takes a long time. I was with Don Timberg yesterday morning. This past week he had surgery and had to have his big toe removed. And he lost that toe because of a circulatory problem. He knew that he needed surgery to correct his circulatory problem in his leg, but because his wife Ginny was in her final days, he refused to leave her and go to the hospital to take care of this problem. Ginny died six days ago. And once she had passed, then Don checked himself in to the hospital to get it taken care of. But the delay cost him his toe. Saying goodbye to someone you love is really hard. And so you linger. And you take your time. And you hold on. And you try to say all of those things that you thought you'd have time to say, but now the time is up. You imagine that parting one day in the indefinite future, but that day is now. Don and Ginny had been together for a little more than 20 years. She was God's gift to Don. And he's missing her something terrible this morning. Don and his big toe had been together for a lot more than 20 years. But he didn't even mention that toe to me when I was visiting with him yesterday. The Last Supper was Jesus' lingering goodbye. Our second reading this morning was a small little part of that long goodbye. And in that snippet, the word love appears nine times again and again and again. That note is struck. All of you who've been around churches for a while, you know that the word love in the New Testament is not the same word love that is used by Hollywood. The kind of love that Hollywood talks about is called eros in Greek. It never, that word never, one time, never once appears in scripture. But when Jesus talks about love, he uses an entirely different word. The word is agape. It is a self-giving love that we find in the New Testament. Eros, on the other hand, is the love of desire. 
It's the love that is born out of our need. When I meet someone who fulfills my need, I love them. We say things like, I can't live without you. We say things like, where would I be without you? Eros is a love of need. It's a love of fulfilled desire, but agape is just the opposite. Agape comes out of our fullness rather than our lack. Agape is the self-giving love of the New Testament. We should never confuse agape with eros, which is the love of Hollywood. The self-giving love of God, the love that a father has for his son, the love that the son has for his disciples, the love that Jesus commands his disciples to have for one another, this kind of love is about giving and not about getting. It reaches its highest pitch When one person is willing to give up his own life for another person. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. I've been thinking a lot about President Zelensky lately. 53 days ago, the Russian army invaded Ukraine. The army had been massing on the border for weeks. Vladimir Putin, the Russian dictator, a liar who speaks the native language of his father, Satan, Putin said, oh, we're not going to invade. But 53 days ago, the Russian army did invade. And the brilliant plan of the savvy Putin was to make a lightning strike at the capital, Kiev, to topple the government and to absorb Ukraine into Putin's fantasy of a resurrected Russian empire. I think the whole world believed Putin's vision of reality. President Biden certainly did. Because when the Russians invaded, Biden's first offer, just one day into the invasion, was to help Zelensky run away. And you remember President Zelensky's response. I need ammunition, not a ride. It is amazing that he is still alive. I believe in providence, and so I believe that Almighty God has protected the life of the Ukraine president because from the beginning, the Russians made no secret of the fact that they had sent assassins in to kill this man. One day after the invasion began, Zelensky met with European leaders in a Zoom call and he said, this might be the last time you see me alive. And he wasn't being dramatic. He was telling the sober truth. And ever since, 53 days of war so far, Zelensky has remained in Kiev. His wife and children remain in the country. Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Real leaders, real shepherds of the people live with their people. And they share the life of their people and the fate of their people. They don't run away to save their own skins. They don't think that they are better than the people that they rule or that they're subject to a different set of rules than the people that they lead. Zelensky's humility and his courage have been electrifying. 
It has saved his country. It has brought in the aid and the admiration of the civilized world. And this humble courage has been echoed and multiplied 10,000 times 10,000 as so many people have found the courage to stand up against the Russians and their ruthless firepower. If Zelensky had taken Biden up on his offer, today Ukraine would have been absorbed into the Russian Empire. History, however, in God's providence, has taken a different course. History took a course that few expected. Because one man was willing, in a very real way, to put his own life on the line. I can think of no greater moral contrast in my lifetime than between this little man... President Zelensky, in his vulnerability and in his weakness, in his little country and in his humility, risking his life to save home and family. And on the other hand, Putin, the world's wealthiest man, sitting in a large empire with a nuclear army and all of the loudmouth buffoons who praise him and who admire him. No greater contrast. The whole account of the Last Supper in the Gospel of John is filled with love. It is bookended with love. The passage opens in chapter 13 this way. When Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. Jesus could have escaped the death that lay in front of him. He could have exited that scene. He could have saved his own skin. And then at the end of this passage in chapter 17, it wraps up the Last Supper scene with Jesus praying, O righteous Father, I made known to them the love with which you have loved me. May that love be in them and I in them. From the beginning to the end, it's all about God's love. Not Eros, not the love of the world, not the love of Hollywood, but self-giving, self-sacrificing love of agape. The pagan gods, of course, they have erotic relations with humanity. If those gods loved humans, it was a love of appetite, a love of desire, even a love of sexual consummation. But Yahweh isn't the tin pot god of pagans. He is infinitely higher and nobler and more exalted and more sublime and truer and more just because the creator of the universe creates out of his fullness, not out of his need. Erotic love, the love that the world sells, Hollywood's version of love, erotic love is all about need and desire. It's about filling the empty space inside of me, whereas God's love, agape, is the exact opposite. It is born out of plenty and fullness and overflowing. God loves us, not because he needs us or because he's desirous of us. God loves us generously. Because of his infinite richness and abundance. Now in the beginning, before the fall, 
We enjoyed God's love in an easy way, in an uncomplicated communion in the garden. You remember that God would spend the evenings walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, that is, until we disobeyed God's one and only command. Notice, by the way, that what Jesus says about love and commandments. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So what happened when we broke the one simple command that God gave us in the garden? Well, we stepped outside of God's love. We proved that we love ourselves more than we love God. Eros, the world's love, Hollywood's love, is always about satisfying me. Eros, the world's love, Hollywood's love, is the love that is always about filling my desires, which is the opposite of agape, which is a self-giving love. The odd thing, of course, is that when we pursue self-serving love rather than self-giving love, it's actually bad for us. And so God in His mercy, because God wants what is best for us, God sends His own Son into the world to teach us about self-giving love, not just with words, but also with deeds. Greater love has no man than this, that He lay down His life for His friends. That self-giving love raised to the highest pitch. That's life-giving love. Jesus gave up His life To rescue our lives that were separated from God by our own self-serving love. Well, here we are, and it's Resurrection Sunday. It is Jesus' love for us that led Him to the cross. But then Sunday comes as a surprise. Jesus had hinted at the possibility of a resurrection. He said that if you tear down this temple, that he would raise it up in three days. He said that way back in the beginning of his ministry when he clears the temple of the money changers. But when he did come back to life, everyone was surprised. The people who knew him were surprised. And as unlikely as it was, the hard and irreducible historical fact of the resurrection is just something we can't ignore. Peter and John saw the empty tomb, John believes. Mary saw the Lord. At first she thought it was the gardener, but then she heard him speak. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he was seen by more than 500 people. And the resurrection and the subsequent coming of the Holy Spirit gave a power to the Jesus movement that it had lacked before because there is no way to tell the story of Jesus without the resurrection. If you strip the story of Jesus of its supernatural qualities... You might as well just pitch 
the whole thing. If all you have is the Sermon on the Mount, well, Jesus would be a very nice, you know, rabbi who preaches a kind of a radical interpretation of the law of Moses. Very nice, but nothing to get crazy about. But when you have a resurrection, when you have a dead man who ceases to be dead, then you have witnessed the invasion of our world from something that is beyond this world. The resurrection is one of those bridges between the ordinary and the divine, between time and eternity, between the realm of humans and the realm of the divine. Back in the garden, heaven and earth were very close together and God was able to walk in the evening with us because the world had not yet been infected with selfish self-love. The world was still ruled by agape, by God's self-giving love. And so in the resurrection we have God coming a long way around through His own self-giving love through his own self-sacrifice, to restore the relationship that we broke in our self-serving love. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved us. And he gave himself for us. And so the Son in turn commands us as his followers to love one another. Not with the self-serving love of the world or Hollywood, but in the self-giving love of agape that we find in Scripture. While the resurrection was unexpected, it certainly is not surprising once we know about it. I mean, after all, God created the world out of nothing. He created life out of inorganic matter, and so resurrecting a life, recreating a life, that's that's nothing. And the resurrection of Jesus won't be the last such miracle. In fact, the day is coming when the dead in Christ will rise, all of them, in new and in glorified bodies, and they're going to live again. What's that going to be like? Well, I guess it's going to be like when Jesus was resurrected. I mean, one day he was dead, and then... Another day he wasn't dead anymore. That's what it's going to be like with us. One day we'll be dead. And then at some later point we'll stop being dead. Jesus, of course, wasn't a ghost. He's not a spirit. The resurrected Jesus is a real person. He has a body. He walked around. He talked to people. He ate food. He was living in a physical body. And when we are resurrected, we will be too on that day of resurrection when Jesus returns. And here's the big change that will happen, however, when we are finally in our resurrected, glorified bodies. At that point, we will no longer act out of selfish self-love. Our only motivation will be agape, self-giving love. During our Christian pilgrimage, during the time that we uh, walk this life... We are being slowly transformed, little bit by little bit, to look more and more like Jesus, to think and act and behave and 
be more like Jesus. Little by little, the Holy Spirit transforms us. It happens from the inside out. We call that process sanctification. All of us wrestle with sin in this life. All of us have things that need to be rooted out of us. All of us are selfish. Even a powerhouse saint like the Apostle Paul wrestled with his own sin. But when Christ returns, our sanctification is going to be complete. We will be in glorified bodies and we will no longer have the daily struggle with sin. Until that day, we remind ourselves of God's transforming power in us. And that remains our hope. Knowing that God will one day bring to completion the good work that he began in us. Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would inherit eternal life. Do you believe that? Because by faith in Jesus, a bunch of things happen. One of the things that happens is is that the sin that separates us from God is forgiven. Christ's death on a cross becomes payment for our sin. That's one of the things that happens. By faith in Jesus, our sins get transferred to Jesus' account and get wiped out on the cross. And simultaneously, though, on the good side, that's on the negative side, on the plus side, the fully righteous, perfectly lived life of Christ becomes credited to us. So Jesus absorbs our sin, but we then get his good record in, in exchange. It's not a very fair exchange, but it works out really well for us. By faith in Jesus, we are united with Jesus. We become one with Jesus. What is His becomes ours. His perfectly righteous life becomes the record that we will have when we stand before Almighty God on that day of judgment. Do not go to your judgment day in your own power. Don't do it. Okay, Your record isn't good enough. You might be better than your neighbor. You might be better than other people that you know, but you're not good enough to stand in the presence of God. You can only do that successfully by going in the robes of righteousness that we receive from Christ. By faith in Jesus, we share in Christ's righteousness, but we will also share in Christ's resurrection. We celebrate Easter as an anniversary of the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, you know, we celebrate, we Christians moved the Sabbath, their Sabbath, from Saturday to Sunday because Sunday was the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so that was the day that we gathered for worship. We continue to do that, you know, 2,000 years later. We call it the Lord's Day. We continue to repeat this fundamental truth that Jesus, who was dead, is now alive, and that first resurrection was a kind of down payment for a general resurrection that is to come. On this resurrection Sunday, my prayer for you is that you are in Christ. You've placed your faith in Him, that you believe what He says about Himself. 
that you stop trusting in your own goodness to be able to stand uh, in front of God and that you rather cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. Christ will return soon. And on that day, the dead will be raised. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father God, you are the maker of life and you are the renewer of life. We thank you for your word, which stands the test of time. We pray that amid all of the changing words and opinions of our time, that your eternal truth would find its root in our heart. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.